God chose congregational worship for us. I wouldn't have chosen it because I don't like people by nature. Hey, you know, you're all looking at me like I'm Judas Iscariot in your pulpit, but there's many of you that are the same way, that if we could worship the Lord ourselves or with our wives or with our families, we might prefer that, but that isn't what the Lord allows us to do. He's commanded us to do something differently because he chose congregational worship. He wants us to come together in a body like this. He's, he's chosen the cooperation that he expects from us with each other. He's chosen the synergy of the various gifts and abilities and opportunities of a group. They're better than individuals. Two are better than one. Threefold cord is not quickly broken. The desert locust is a wise creature, though small, because it knows when it has need of food and it gets so close together that the hind legs rub on a desert locust. It's a very solitary creature. Ordinarily, they join together in bands of billions without a leader and fly together and are able to find food that way that no one can resist them. And, the, and Solomon taught us that. Agur taught us that, I, excuse me, in Proverbs chapter 30 about the desert locust. God chose congregational worship for the assistance that we can give each other to provoke each other to love and to good works. He made the choice. Not only did God make the choice to be worshipped congregationally, God made the choice for every one of his churches and for every member that's a part of those churches. It says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47 that the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So it's the Lord that adds. 1 Corinthians 12, 18 says that the Lord hath put in the church them that please him. Amen. They might not please you. They might not please me. But they should because they please the Lord. Right. And so because they please the Lord, they should please us. Right. 1 Corinthians, I just want to briefly look at a couple points here. The first one is verse 31 of chapter 12. And that is the introduction to chapter 13. Covet earnestly the best gifts. Corinthians, why don't you lift your heads a little bit higher than speaking in tongues and look up the list that I have ranked for you, the apostle writes, and covet earnestly. There are some things you should covet. And these things that are listed here, you should covet earnestly. You should greatly desire spiritual gifts, especially the Corinthians, when there were so many different, varied spiritual gifts in the church. Covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. The higher that you might look up the list of the ranking of God's ministerial gifts, I still have a more excellent way for you to serve the Lord. And that's chapter 13, which is brotherly love. There is no love for God in 1 Corinthians 13. There's no love of God for us in 1 Corinthians 13. It is brotherly love in 1 Corinthians 13, which is the problem that the Corinthians had and why they were boasting in their gifts and lording it over others. And so we have this wonderful verse, 1231, that tells us there is a more excellent way to serve the Lord Jesus Christ than any gift in the list that the apostle gave us. Then we come to the last verse of the 13th chapter, and Paul tells us, Now abideth faith, hope, charity. 
Faith and hope and charity abide because they are Christian graces that see us through this entire dispensation from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, unlike these Pentecostal charismatic gifts which were not going to abide. They were going to disappear very quickly after the apostle wrote these words. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, but the greatest of these is charity. And so the apostle gives us the title for our sermon series, Love is the Greatest, because he said of those three Christian graces of faith and hope and charity or love, charity or love is the greatest. The Bible in both Testaments presents loving your neighbors and brothers as the top relational command and duty that we have. What is love of others? It is a selfless desire and help for their profit by Bible terms with an eye to heaven. Real love is a selfless help given to others by Bible terms, with an eye to heaven, because we want to help another person please God and prepare for the great day of judgment and to grow in favor with God and men. That's the definition of love. It's very different from the pitter-patter, infatuated feelings of puppy love and the lust that, cra- that rage in your soul. It is a choice to put on an ambition for other people I want to help make them better. Not to please me better, not to make me happier, so that they can please God and others better. We must avoid doctrine without love. The heartless knowledge that Paul condemned right here in this passage in the first three verses. And we want to avoid love without doctrine which is the foolish emotion and sentiment of compromise that is so popular today and that the prophet Jehu condemned in the King Jehoshaphat. Number one that we had on your pages, love is the greatest duty. Hopefully you have your pages from last Lord's Day. If you don't, you can start over again. We didn't make it very far. Love is the greatest duty. The love of God and the love of neighbor are two commandments, the first two commandments, the greatest commandments, and they include all other commandments, as the Bible tells us. So love is the greatest duty because it's the first commandment toward God, and it's the second commandment toward our neighbors, and it includes all the other commandments. Paul required an increase in this matter of love for others, the matter of brotherly love, especially with the Thessalonians, where he stated that, and he stated it in other places as well. You're not very far away from Philippians chapter 1. Look at that with me for a moment, just to see Paul again with another excellent church. The church at Philippi is one of the best churches in the New Testament, and yet the apostle exhorted them to more love. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. Now that's a lot that's accomplished through loving and abounding in love more and more. So the apostle again, I'm praying that this good church 
would abound yet more and more in love. Love is the greatest duty. We should be provoking each other to love and the good works. Hebrews 10.24 tells us why we get together as a church. It's not just to hear the pastor. That's just part of a church's life. It is to consider one another and to exhort one another and to provoke each other to love and to good works. We've come in here to sing to each other. We sing to the Lord, but in the New Testament, the emphasis is not singing to the Lord. The emphasis in the New Testament is singing to each other. We are to be speaking and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so we come together for a relief from the world to be reminded and exhorted and provoked to live for the, until the next assembly in love and good works, right. with love being part of that. So it's a great duty. Number two, love is the greatest concept. Love is a simple word with a wide variety of meanings to different people. Only God can truly define it. And we're thankful for the definition he gave us in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, in that one sentence with 15 phrases. Love is not chemistry, circumstances, or clicking with someone else. Those are childish, foolish terms to describe something very lofty and noble. Love is more than a feeling. It's keeping God's commandments toward others for their profit, that they would be greater in the sight of God and men. If you love someone, you want to help them be greater in the sight of God and men. It's a wonderful ambition. Therefore, love is a choice. And I went over that last Lord's Day, and I'm not going to repeat myself this morning. Love is the superlative relational bond between people. It's the best way for an organization to function. Though the organizations of the world don't know what love is, this is not really an organization when we have a church. It's an organism, and the parts of our body, this church body, should relate to each other like the parts of my physical body. Right. My physical bodily parts all love each other. They care about each other. And if one part is ailing, the other parts will make up for it or ask for the day off if it's bad enough. Love is a wonderful thing. It's the superlative relational bond of men, and it unites churches together. Now, I shared with you this morning, Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, be kindly affectioned one to another in brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Romans 12, 10, it's a wonderful verse. Let me spend a moment on that under point two, that love is the greatest concept. Why don't we look at Romans 15 and see if the apostle mentioned it again in that epistle. Romans chapter 15. Love is kind affection, preferring others before yourself. Are you kind to others? That doesn't mean you open the door for them. Are you affectionate toward others? Now, to be affectionate toward another person is to be kind, benevolent, compassionate toward another person. And yet we have the Holy Spirit combining two terms and saying, be kindly affectioned, which is, is an emphatic combination of terms. Are you kindly affectionate to the other members of this church? Driving here on Sunday, sitting and driving home, is no kindness at all. It is not affection at all. 
Because when you don't show kind affection toward others, yet you come, you are a burden to us. We wish you would go away. We don't want you here. We don't need you here. You don't add anything to us. And when you disappear and we're praying for it, we will not be the worse off by one bit because you never did anything for anyone. We only want those here that want to compact this body together and make it better for the Lord Jesus Christ. Love is always looking outside itself toward others. When you leave quickly after a service, it's because all you can think about is yourself. When you come late, all you can think about is yourself. When you don't participate, it's because all you can think about is yourself. You prefer yourself over others. And that is a choice that we need to make to prefer others over ourselves. The Lord Jesus Christ preferred us over himself. The Lord Jesus Christ preferred his Father's pleasure over his pleasure. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done for these ugly scumbags that I'm going to redeem. He didn't say it quite that way, but the Bible does say that he reconciled us to God while we were his enemies. And while we were without strength, and while we were sinners, he saved us. Love is kind affection, preferring others over yourself. Look at the first two verses of Romans 15. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us, notice the, in, the individual nature of New Testament doctrine. It is not some fuzzy, bland, broad concept of church love. It is individuals being addressed by the apostle on the behalf of God. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Does that back up my definition of love? Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good and his edification. Edification is building something up. An edifice is a built-up structure. We want to build each other up so that we each love God more and we love Christ more and we are more committed to his word and we are putting his word into practice in our lives and we have marriages like we should have, relationships with our children, on the job, with the government like we should have. This is what's taught in that second verse. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good. The love of fornicators is lust. Right. And that is to please my neighbor. That's the girl that's on my motorcycle or in my car. That's to please my neighbor for my good. That's why the L word is used. I love you. I love you gets clothes off. Every young fornicating man knows that. It gets knees spread. I love you. That isn't love. Right. That is selfish narcissism and hatred of that poor girl and her family. 
It's so different. The world's idea of love. And that use of love is found in the Bible in Proverbs chapter 7 where the adulteress is seducing the young man. She says, let us take our fill of love until the morning. There's no love in adultery except self-love, selfish cravings and lusts. This is, we're totally, it's totally different. What the world calls love is nothing but lust. What we are defining as love here is looking outside ourselves for the good of another. Do you like this verse? I love this verse. It's rather plain and simple. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. So let's do it in a way that pleases them, but it's for their good and it builds them up. Now that's balancing a few things. Because you can't just jump on them. You can't just preach them a sermon. You've got to do it in a way that, that pleases them and motivates them and provokes them to love and to good works. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. What choices do you make pertaining to this church to please yourself? You're wrong, you're hateful, you're selfish, and you stand in doubt as to whether you're even a child of God. The fact that you believe the doctrine in our church or you believe the King James Bible or anything like that is no evidence of doctrine whatsoever. Never has been, never will be. The devils believe the King James Bible. The devils fear God and they tremble about it. But what have you done to please others and what choices do you make to please yourself? What choices do you make to protect your schedule? What choices do you make to protect your stupid money? What choices do you make to please yourself instead of pleasing others. This is what we should do. This is what the Lord wants us to do. He did it. Did he care about his money? Did he care about his position? Did he care about his throne? Was he in the form of God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but laid aside all of that and came down to earth and became poor? The poor perceived son of a carpenter was laid in a manger, died on the cross, the cruel death of the Roman crucifixion. He didn't please himself. We shouldn't please ourselves. Okay. We're on point number two, that love is the greatest concept. And I want to emphasize this fact of looking outside ourselves and exalting others as being more important than ourselves. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. This is very important. When the Bible says that the second most important commandment is thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Why does it say that? Because we already love ourselves supremely. And if we could ever learn to love another person like we love ourselves, that is the highest measure of love on earth. For you to care about another person as much as you care about yourself. And so Jesus taught it that way. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Why don't you get out of yourself and learn to love other people like you love yourself? 1 Corinthians 10.24 puts it this way. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. And that wealth here is not financial wealth, it's spiritual wealth. It's conscience wealth. It's faith wealth. These verses are wonderful. This is the word of God. 
My job description is very simple. It's three words. Preach the word. This is the word of God. So I read it to you again. Let no man. Did it say in the previous verse, let every one of you? So that was a positive instruction. This is a negative warning. Let no man seek his own. But every man another's wealth. Quit trying to seek your own advantage, your own profits, your own pleasure, your own ease, your own comfort, and seek the comfort, peace, pleasure, and profit of others. So the Lord teaches us. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. I used it to open the preparatory email sent to you yesterday. I will just read verses 3 and 4 this time. I don't want to be distracted by verses 1 and 2, though the distraction there is a very powerful, logical argument that if there are such things in God and His gospel, it ought to move us to show what is described and prescribed for us in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. There shouldn't be quarrels, grudges, conflicts in our church in you trying to protect yourself or vainglory, your efforts to get any attention. But in opposition to that, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Themselves is plural, but that just means the rule I just gave applies to the whole church. But the rule that he gave is one by one. But in lowliness of mind, let each. Each is not plural. Each is singular. Let each esteem other, not others, but other. One-on-one again. Yes, I know I'm emphasizing it. Because you can't excuse yourself by saying, I love the church, and you mean some fuzzy, undefinable concept of, I'm acceptable, or I accept the rest of the church members as a group. The Lord doesn't allow that. That is unacceptable. That isn't love. It's meaningless. It's profitless. It doesn't do anyone any good. This is what does people good. In order, we need to lower our mental value that we put on ourselves and raise the mental value. We raise our mental value that we put on others. In lowliness of mind, esteem other better than themselves. This is totally contrary to the world. The world sings the greatest love of all is loving yourself. The world says that the panacea for relational problems is to have self-esteem. But this verse doesn't tell me to have self-esteem. It tells me to have other esteem. We reject self-esteem as a diabolical lie of the devil. No one needs more self-esteem. They came into this world at conception with all they ever will need and too much. I love this text. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. So it is a mental choice that I am not the most valuable. It's a mental choice. My desires, my preferences, my time, my money doesn't matter. They matter. Therefore, my time is their time. My money is their money. My refrigerator is their refrigerator. 
My car is their car. My emotional effort is, is theirs. I'll do anything I can for them. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now it's got the word also there in verse 4, which means that you do have to take care of yourself a little bit. And that's why also is there. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So, Because we've got to take care of our own things to a degree, but then we should always be looking outside ourselves. What can I now do for someone else? What can I now do for someone else? And the less you have going on in your life, when you're retired, or your job is limited, or you don't have a job, and you've got more hours, what in the world are you doing with your life? God is counting every one of those 168 hours. Use them for others. And so this point that I want to make right here is getting outside ourselves. This is a glorious concept. We're under the point concept. Love is the greatest concept. Fully against the natural, popular, devilish love of self. The Bible warns that in the perilous times of the last days, men shall be... Lovers of their own selves. Evidence number one of perilous times out of 19 traits is loving yourself. i got to protect myself. If I love my husband that way, I'll turn into a doormat. Oh, you're so bright. You're so bright. Your marriage is so miserable. Everyone is so unhappy. You're displeasing God, and he is going to rip you to shreds when you meet him because you don't want to love your husband or you don't want to love your wife. Because if I loved them the way that you preach in this church, I would just be a doormat and they'd walk all over me. You selfish thing. How does that thought even enter your mind? Because all you can think about is yourself. When you should be thinking about others. It's a commandment to think about others. You promised that you would think about that person you married when you married them. You promised. You vowed before God that you would do it. And it's the only way that your marriage will ever be happy. It's the superlative relational bond. If you don't do it, you're going to suffer the consequences. Thank you, Lord. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. Trait number one of perilous times. The world foams at their mouth about self-esteem, though they know it is high or the highest among criminals. Psychological evaluations have been done of criminals, and they have been found to have very high or the highest Self-love and self-esteem. And that should make perfectly good sense to you in something around three seconds. Why are they in prison? Because they wouldn't keep the law. Why wouldn't they keep the law? They were better than the law. But what about the laws that involve other people? Those laws don't matter because they're more important than the other people. So B and E doesn't bother them. They can break and enter someone else's property because they're more important. They don't think about it that way because they're too stupid. And they're too blinded by self-infatuation. They just break in because they're more important. And I need a fix right now, and I don't have the cash because I don't believe in working, so I'm going to use a little B&E to pay for my next high. They've learned, the world knows that. You can read their studies. The world knows that, yet they want to foam about the fact. What we need in America is more self-love and self-esteem. Oh no, that isn't what Americans need. 
they need more other love and other esteem. This thinking by the world's best and brightest proves they're morally, logically, and practically insane. To want to tell criminals that you can make yourself better by coming to my little sensitivity session and I'll help you love yourself more. Criminals don't need that. They need to be forced to serve others. That's what the Bible did. Sold them into slavery. Drill a hole through their ear and make them a permanent slave so they can repay their B and E crimes. Bible love is opposite the perverse selfishness and destructive sins of self-love and self-esteem. This is the highest order of love to think about another person's good. Think about another person's profit. Think about another person's wealth. Some of these words that we've used here, and I want to sell that to you because it's the word of God and it's wonderful and it's precious. And when people relate this way, it is as high as man can get. What if, now when I was a financial analyst, we would do what if financial analyses of different factors involving the future of a company or of of a decision that we were going to make. And a what if analysis was what if we try this What's going to happen two years, to our, two years from now to our earnings? Well, let's do it this way, a what-if analysis. What if everyone esteemed and honored all others more important than themselves? What if people did that? What would it be like? It'd be wonderful. Right. It'd be wonderful. What if everyone showed this fantastic alteration of human nature to each individual person? Wow. It'd be wonderful. That should be logically obvious to you. It should be morally obvious to you, and it is scripturally obvious because it's written. And that's all we need. Christians never think, not for a second, of others doing this to them, but rather them to others. If it's even crossed your mind, why isn't everyone loving me the way the pastor's preaching? If it's even crossed your mind for a second, you have a spiritual problem and you're selfish. It shouldn't enter your mind. All that should be entering your mind is the conviction, I could, I should love others on an individual basis more than I do. In any setting and at all times, you should consider yourself the least important person present. There I go again. A couple of life priorities. I am third. Beautiful statement. I am third. Jesus first, others second, myself last. Joy. How do you find joy in life? Jesus, others, and then you. What if your prayer requests were mostly for others? If you were thinking more on the things of others than your own things, and we ask for prayer requests, and your hand goes up, what are you going to ask for? The need of someone else in the church. Why would you raise your hand for yourself? Just help me. Why would you do that? I don't understand. The Lord doesn't understand. Well, I have this need. So? Why don't you want to mention someone else's need? I know how harsh and crass I am at times, like right now. I know, but I'm trying to help you think. Why would you raise your hand and ask prayer for yourself when you're supposed to be thinking about others? We're going to get to you soon. Do you know how soon we're going to get to you? 
when we get to request 205. But, you, but I want to tell you something. If you'll raise your hand and ask prayer for someone else, you're going to have your request answered in haste by the God of heaven because you've put others first, practicing love of others. He will honor you for that because you're fulfilling his word. We will get to you. We, should, we know about your needs, and you know about others' needs, and that's how we... I'm just, I'm just asking, what if? What if prayer requests were mostly for others? What if your prayers were mostly for others? What if your concern for prosperity was mostly for others? What if your health was less important than other people's health? Right. What if you used social media for others only? knowing that there's no one out there that wants to know about you. I hope you know that so that you don't go through life self-deceived. What can you do for others? If you're even going to mess around with social media, what are you going to do for them? Right. Telling them about you is not doing anything for them. You say, well, what about my parents? Then write them an email. Why are you broadcasting it to the whole world if you're thinking about your parents? Don't use excuses like that with me. I'm not quite that easy. That was number two. Love is the greatest concept. How about love is the greatest definition? That was number three. Remember that number three, love is the greatest definition because the Bible gives us a definition and we've just looked at some extra verses that we didn't look at last Lord's Day that are wonderful about love and that is seeking another's welfare and another's wealth and another's good that they can be better in the sight of God and men. Love is sacrificial desire producing action to help another person realize God's best for his life. And if we always thought that way, we would be building each other up so that our church would be constantly growing by every part up to the, this is how the Bible describes it, to the full measure of the stature of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the head of the church he has put his spirit in the church. And when we follow the spirit and don't grieve and quench the spirit, we compact ourselves together and build up the body. We edify ourselves in love, Ephesians 4, 16. And so we grow up to fill out a perfect, glorious body for the Lord Jesus Christ as our head. Amen. And we do that by love being a sacrificial desire, producing action to help another person realize God's best for their life. How do love and charity relate? I mentioned this briefly last Lord's Day. Are they different? Do they include one another by their definitions? Yes and yes. In some respects, charity and love are synonyms for each other and are used that way. And in other respects, they're not. Because if charity is a subset of love, then charity does encompass some things that are considered to be love. But charity does not encompass everything that is considered to be love because it's only a subset. Is that right? It's been a long time. Subsets and supersets, intersecting sets, and so forth. Lord, thank you. There is not an error, fault, or weakness in the King James Version because charity adds an emphasis that we want and we need. Right. Charity is a subset of love. It is more love's negative aspects, those aspects that are described in the Bible as suffering. Love suffers. How does that definition of love start in 1 Corinthians 13, 4? Charity suffereth long. Charity suffereth. Well, that's not exactly what we think of when we think of love. 
But when we think of charity and properly understand the word charity, it is what we initially think of. Because we put up with another person and bear them and forbear them and overlook their faults. And that is the charitable or the negative side of love, suffering. It's, let me put it this way. Is it right for charity to be the highest? Let me get to that in a moment. Charity is a subset. It's more love's negative aspects like suffering another person, forgiving them, forbearing them. Here's the dictionary definition of charity. If this means, listen carefully, charity. A, disp a disposition to judge leniently and hopefully of the character, aims, and destinies of others, to make allowance for their apparent faults and shortcomings, large-heartedness. So it's an overlooking aspect of love. Right. When there is another part of love that is not an overlooking aspect, it's a creative aspect that wants to go do something for someone else. Peter, when he lists eight things that we ought to have in our lives to make our calling and election sure, started with faith. He starts with faith because that's the gift of God that doesn't prove very much. There's lots of believers that are going to go to hell. There are lots of people that have called on the name of the Lord that are going to go to hell because the Bible says so. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus references those that believed on him, but didn't really believe on him. He would not join them. He would not approve of them. And in fact, he called them children of the devil. Because they did not believe on him to change their lives to obey him. And that's what it takes. The devils believe in God. And they tremble. They believe in prophecy. They believe in Bible doctrine. They know that Jesus Christ is going to torment them for eternity. They know all that. They professed that. They professed with their mouth the Lord Jesus. When the devils on this earth saw Jesus Christ of Nazareth before he was even glorified, they would fall at his feet and worship him and declare that he was the Holy One of God. That's as good of a profession as anyone that's ever been baptized is made about as far as professing the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord. They know exactly who he is. He's the Holy One of God, and he has the power and the authority and the destiny to cast them into hell and to torment them for eternity. That is not enough. Love, faith is not enough. So the Apostle Peter started with faith and then added to it virtue and knowledge and godliness and patience and temperance. And then the top two keystones of eight things that we ought to have in our lives to make our calling and election sure is brotherly kindness and charity. Amen. Brotherly kindness is what we read in Romans 12.10. It's brotherly love. It's showing kindness and an affectionate spirit toward our brothers. It's brotherly love. But how does charity get above it? Charity get above brotherly love. Because charity is harder. The negative aspect of love is harder than the positive aspects. Let me put it to you this way. Is it right for charity to be the highest? Indeed. It is harder to forgive offenses than to take someone to dinner. There isn't even a, it's not even close. Because it's a lot harder to forgive someone who has offended you, hurt you, than it is to take them to dinner. Or to take someone to dinner. Take someone to dinner, flash a piece of plastic, eat some good food with them. It only takes a few minutes. Then you can say bye-bye. 
and drive away and you, and you justify yourself as having done something noble, good, and great. But how about somebody that just irritates you, offends you, has denied you, hurt you, stolen from you, whatever, and you forgive them and overlook it. Forgive them and overlook it and forgive it again. And as the Lord told Peter, 70 times 7, Peter, is a closer number to how often you ought to forgive your brother. Oh, that's much harder. And so that's why we have charity in the Bible. And thank you, Lord, for putting charity in the Bible. Amen. It's the greatest definition. Very quickly, let me show you this definition. Look all the way back to Leviticus 19. It's just a, it's a small part of love, but it's there. Leviticus 19. Children, are you excited that I've had your writing on your handout today? Love is the greatest definition. Here is, a, here is a different aspect of love. Leviticus 19. Remember last Lord's Day I shared with you from verse 11 down through verse 18 that there are a number of statements here made about how they were to treat each other in the nation of Israel, which, are, which was like church members because the, the nation of Israel was the church in the Old Testament. But I want verse 17. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Well, how do we do that? Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. If you know in your heart that your brother is doing something wrong and you don't do anything about it, then you're hating your brother in your heart. The opposite of that and what we should do, thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Don't let anything stand between you and doing what you ought to do. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Now the book of Proverbs tells us that when you rebuke a wise man, he will love you for it. If you rebuke a scorner, he will hate you for it. David said, if the righteous smite me, I'll consider it kindness. Because that's the attitude we ought to have towards someone rebuking us. But this is a part of love because it's correcting errors and it goes back to our ultimate definition. Our ultimate definition is the sacrificial desire to help another person please God and men. And how do you help them please God and men? Sometimes you give them an example. Sometimes you give them encouragement. Sometimes you give them friendship. Sometimes you give them a rebuke. Like this text tells us and like other places tell us. Jesus said in the red writing in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Right. So Jesus Christ shows that toward us, and we ought to show it toward others. It's not the most important part of love. It's a small part of love. Because the big part of love is charity. And that's putting up with the personal faults and offenses of others toward us. Overemphasis on this part of love, which has happened in the past, is a distortion and creates a Gestapo mentality in a church, right. which is not the mentality we're supposed to have. Yet, it is part of love. Because if you truly love someone, you will correct them, you will rebuke them, you will warn them in order to help them do what is right. Because sometimes it takes more than encouragement, it takes correction. It right. takes reproof. It takes warning. 
However, the New Testament spends a whole lot more emphasis on the bowels of compassion, the bowels of mercies that we're supposed to have toward each other, and the bowels that are to be motivating us in our treatment of others. We're, we're supposed to put on bowels of compassion, and how in the world can we have stuff and have another person in need and our bowels not be moved for them? That's the emphasis of 1 John 3 and 4. Number four on your handout is love is the greatest ideal. Here we go. Number four, love is the greatest ideal. Our use of the word ideal is a conception of something or a thing conceived in its highest perfection or is an object to be realized or aimed at, a perfect type, a standard of perfection or excellence, and love, Bible love, is an ideal because of the way it's defined and the way it's the concept of it, and when it's put into practice, it is so fantastic. Men... Worldly men have sought to find an environment. They have sought a philosophy or a system to realize perfection. And they have tried to call it utopia. But they have miserably failed in all forms. Especially the idiocy of communism or the hippie movement. Remember free love. Some of you are too young to remember those days in the 60s where everybody painted themselves colors and let their hair grow long enough to sit on and didn't want to go to work and just wanted to sit around and smoke marijuana all day and listen to The Who, which was a rock group from England. The hippie movement. They thought they had found a new way to live. We can get rid of the establishment, throw off the yoke, sing along with The Who, won't get fooled again. Won't get fooled again. They thought that they had found something. They found nothing but trouble. And what a messed up bunch of people they were. Hallucinating, free love, free, free uh, disease is what we can call it. It was a, a free zone for diseases. STDs rampant because of their idea of free love. The Bible understands something, and it's an ideal of how people can work together, and it's the love that the Bible describes. Where do wars and fighting come from? Where does fighting and war come from? Fighting in your family, fighting in a marriage, fighting in the world, fighting in America, civil war, fighting in the world, World War I, World War II, fighting in the Middle East. Where does fighting and wars come from but the lust that war in your members? Right. And it's the lust of selfishness. James chapter 4 and verse 1 addresses it head on. James chapter 4, 1, from whence comes war, from whence come wars and fightings among you. Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Right. Yes, indeed. And then verse 5, Do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Did the Scripture waste a sentence or two or a page or two or ten pages by saying that the spirit in us loves to envy other men? No, it did not waste any space because that is a fact of human nature. So where do these wars and fightings come from? They come from the lust that war in our members. The selfish lust in men, not replaced with love for men, destroy men. It is so logically simple. simple. It is so morally perfect. It is so practically possible if we would just love others more than ourselves. But it's the selfishness that rages inside us by nature. 
the selfish lust in men, not replaced with love for men, results in fighting and wars in marriage, fightings and wars in families, fightings and wars in nations, and, and among nations in world wars. This leads to foolish destruction of war, no matter what it's in. War is terrible. Right. You know, as a young man, so when I was foolish without any wisdom, which is what is true of young men, that's why they will volunteer to join up at 18 when there's no, nobody's threatened in their community, no one's threatened in their family, but they don't really want to go to work. They would like to get three squares a day, get a nice set of clothes given to them, play around with a rifle, get to put some nice medals on their uniform and parade around the community when they come home and so forth and so on, feel their testosterone, do extra push-ups, do extra pull-ups, and so forth and so on. But war is terrible. As a young man, you think that it's great. Oh, I want to march off and kill Germans. It's World War II. Oh, I want to sail off and kill Japanese. It's World War II. I want to, I want to, I'll, I'll go to Korea when you're young. But war is terrible. War destroys. War confuses. War fills with fear. War ruins assets. War ruins nations. War ru ruins relationships. War ruins houses. War is terrible. War causes confusion, despair, fear, hopelessness, loss, mayhem, murder, pain, trouble, and worry. I want to, I want to remind you that war is terrible. No economic class should be able to convince you otherwise. Anyone ever tells you that World War II is what gave America the economic boost after the war? That is a lie from hell. War never gave an economic boost to anything. War is destructive in nature. War destroys assets. War destroys economies. The only reason there was a wild time of prosperity after World War II is because of the discipline exerted on this nation during World War II in saving. Nobody spent any money. They saved up and accumulated capital. And they put the women to work in our factories. There were other factors. It wasn't the destructive nature of war. It wasn't that we took 50% of the gross domestic product, sailed it across the Atlantic, and blew it up in Europe, or sailed the other half across the Pacific and blew it up in Japan. That's not how nations get ahead, because war is destructive. And all of this conversation right now about war is to make you hate war and fighting. And where do wars and fightings come from? Do they not come from your lust that war in your members? Right. Yes. And so the cure is to replace our selfish lust with selfless love for others. If nations did it, there wouldn't be war. But there's going to be war until the Prince of Peace comes, and he's going to make peace by one final war. Amen. He's not going to ask any longer for men to get along. He's just going to anni annihilate the enemy. That's coming soon, and it'll be wonderful. Amen. Love is the greatest ideal, and that ideal is replacing our selfish lusts that war in us. They're not going to get away with that. They, be, they better not talk to me that way. Those selfish lusts that war in our members, replacing it with selfless love. Right. 
Lord, help us to do that here in this church. Let there never be cliques or segments or schisms or quarrels or grudges here. Love is the ideal. It's the highest perfection for relations because it's the bond of perfectness. Colossians 3.14. If two or more were to relate by this definition and this ideal of love, only perfect peace, pleasure, and profit would result. Period. Jesus taught men how to be perfect children of God, and that's to even love our enemies. Right. What a lofty concept. Love our enemies. And you know, Americans do that better than any other nation on earth in the way that we treat captives and the way that we treat the enemy in fighting, after fighting, and rebuilding their nation. It's incredible. And that is not because our government is all that godly in their thinking, but it's because throughout our nation there has been a Bible thrust of loving thy neighbor because the Bible has been preached in America more than in any other nation. I remember, and some of you were there, meeting some SS officers that had served in the panzer tank divisions of the German army. And at the end of the war, they were sitting in their tank. There was the Russian army. There was the American army. Which one are we going to surrender to? That was an easy decision. You did not want to surrender to the Red Army. Not after what the Germans had done to Russia on their way in and what the Russians had done to the Germans, the Poles, and others on the way back. And so they surrendered to the Americans. What do Americans do when they come into a village if they've got any extra Hershey bars in their packages, in their knapsacks? They're handing out candy bars. It's just a totally different view of things, and that's because of the Bible influence in this country. But we want to be the ultimate example of all this and never let there be wars and fightings in here. There shouldn't be wars and fightings in families. There shouldn't be wars and fightings in marriage. It's the selfish interests of some wife that doesn't want to serve her husband or some selfish interest of a husband that doesn't want to love his wife that causes it, it should be replaced with selfless love. Lord, help us to do that. Jesus taught for us to be the perfect children of God is to love our enemies because he does it. He sends his sunshine and his rain on the evil and the good. Our prisoner of war camps for prisoners taking during World War II were very different than anyone else's. And I, I love the biblical influence that has been in our country, but I hope that you know that this is the year 1970, this is the year 2017, and 1945 was 72 years ago. Things have changed a lot. We must love one another to show the invisible presence of God perfected in us. This is how ideal it is. Last verse, and we go to break. First John chapter 4, look at this. I've preached this before. This is weighty. This is idealistic. But this is true. This is reality. Because God is real. And because our congregation is real, we can put this into practice. This is love as an ideal. But it's a real ideal. It's just up to us to practice it. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. No man hath seen God at any time. Period. That is the truth. 
We have not seen God. We have seen some of his creative works. We have seen his word, but we haven't seen God. Here's how we get to see the influence of God. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. If we love one another, one-on-one, individual love, which is the highest form and the highest measure of it, which we'll be getting to in, in further aspects of love. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us. We haven't seen him. I've never seen him. But when I see the love practiced by some of you toward others, I see him. I see his love coming, flowing through you and knowing that he's done a work of grace in you to cause you to do that. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us when it comes out to, toward others. His love is perfected. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us of his spirit and his spirit, the fruit of the spirit is love. And so the fruit of that spirit comes through us. I've never seen God, but I have seen a change in people that proves God's spirit is in them, though I've never seen him. God is love. They're showing love on a one-to-one -one basis with others. God is in them of a truth. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Stand with me. Our families, we might... God chose congregational worship for us. Amen. I wouldn't have chosen it because I don't like people by nature. Hey, you know, you're all looking at me like I'm Judas Iscariot in your pulpit, but there's many of you that are the same way, that if we could worship the Lord ourselves or with our wives or with our families, we might prefer that, but that isn't what the Lord allows us to do. He's commanded us to do something differently because he chose congregational worship. He wants us to come together in a body like this. He's, he's chosen the cooperation that he expects from us with each other. He's chosen the synergy of the various gifts and abilities and opportunities of a group. They're better than individuals. Two are better than one. Threefold cord is not quickly broken. The desert locust is a wise creature, though small, because it knows when it has need of food and it gets so close together that the hind legs rub on a desert locust. It's a very solitary creature. Ordinarily, they join together in bands of billions without a leader and fly together and are able to find food that way that no one can resist them. And, the, and Solomon taught us that. Agur taught us that, I, excuse me, in Proverbs chapter 30 about the desert locust. God chose congregational worship for the assistance that we can give each other right. to provoke each other to love and to good works. He made the choice. Not only did God make the choice to be worshipped congregationally, God made the choice for every one of his churches and for every member that's a part of those churches. Right. It says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47 that the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Amen. So it's the Lord that adds. 1 Corinthians 12, 18 says that 
the Lord hath put in the church them that please him. Amen. They might not please you. They might not please me. But they should because they please the Lord. Right. And so because they please the Lord, they should please us. First right. Corinthians, I just want to briefly look at a couple points here. The first one is verse 31 of chapter 12. And that is the introduction to chapter 13. Covet earnestly the best gifts. Corinthians, why don't you lift your heads a little bit higher than speaking in tongues and look up the list that I have ranked for you, the apostle writes, and covet earnestly. There are some things you should covet. And these things that are listed here, you should covet earnestly. You should greatly desire spiritual gifts, especially the Corinthians, when there were so many different, varied spiritual gifts in the church. Covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. The higher that you might look up the list of the ranking of God's ministerial gifts, I still have a more excellent way for you to serve the Lord. Right. And that's chapter 13, which is brotherly love. There is no love for God in 1 Corinthians 13. There's no love of God for us in 1 Corinthians 13. It is brotherly love in 1 Corinthians 13, right. which is the problem that the Corinthians had and why they were boasting in their gifts and lording it over others. And so we have this wonderful verse, 1231, that tells us there is a more excellent way to serve the Lord Jesus Christ than any gift in the list that the apostle gave us. Then we come to the last verse of the 13th chapter, and Paul tells us, Now abideth faith, hope, charity. Faith and hope and charity abide because they are Christian graces that see us through this entire dispensation from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, unlike these Pentecostal charismatic gifts which were not going to abide. They were going to disappear very quickly after the apostle wrote these words. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, but the greatest of these is charity. And so the apostle gives us this, the title for our sermon series, Love is the Greatest, because he said of those three Christian graces of faith and hope and charity or love, charity or love is the greatest. The Bible in both Testaments presents loving your neighbors and brothers as the top relational command and duty that we have. What is love of others? It is a selfless desire and help for their profit by Bible terms with an eye to heaven. Real love is a selfless help given to others by Bible terms, with an eye to heaven, because we want to help another person please God and prepare for the great day of judgment and to grow in favor with God and men. That's the definition of love. It's very different from the pitter-patter, infatuated feelings of puppy love and the lust that, that rage in your soul. It is a choice to put on an ambition for other people I want to help make them better. Not to please me better, not to make me happier, so that they can please God and others better. 
We must avoid doctrine without love. The heartless knowledge that Paul condemned right here in this passage in the first three verses. And we want to avoid love without doctrine, which is the foolish emotion and sentiment of compromise that is so popular today and that the prophet Jehu condemned in the king Jehoshaphat. Number one that we had on your pages, love is the greatest duty. Hopefully you have your pages from last Lord's Day. If you don't, you can start over again. We didn't make it very far. Love is the greatest duty. The love of God and the love of neighbor are two commandments, the first two commandments, the greatest commandments, and they include all other commandments, as the Bible tells us. So love is the greatest duty because it's the first commandment toward God, and it's the second commandment toward our neighbors, and it includes all the other commandments. Paul required an increase in this matter of love for others, the matter of brotherly love, especially with the Thessalonians, where he stated that, and he stated it in other places as well. You're not very far away from Philippians chapter 1. Look at that with me for a moment, just to see Paul again with another excellent church. The church at Philippi is one of the best churches in the New Testament, and yet the apostle exhorted them to more love. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. Now that's a lot that's accomplished through loving and abounding in love more and more. So the apostle again, I'm praying that this good church would abound yet more and more in love. Love is the greatest duty. We should be provoking each other to love and to good works. Hebrews 10.24 tells us why we get together as a church. It's not just to hear the pastor. That's just part of a church's life. It is to consider one another and to exhort one another and to provoke each other to love and to good works. We've come in here to sing to each other. We sing to the Lord, but in the New Testament, the emphasis is not singing to the Lord. The emphasis in the New Testament is singing to each other. We are to be speaking and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so we come together for a relief from the world to be reminded and exhorted and provoked to live for the, until the next assembly in love and good works, right. with love being part of that. So it's a great duty. Number two, love is the greatest concept. Love is a simple word with a wide variety of meanings to different people. Only God can truly define it, and we're thankful for the definition he gave us in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, in that one sentence with 15 phrases. Love is not chemistry, circumstances, or clicking with someone else. Those are childish, foolish terms to describe something very lofty and noble. Love is more than a feeling. It's keeping God's commandments toward others for their profit that they would be greater in the sight of God and men. If you love someone, you want to help them be greater in the sight of God and men. It's a wonderful ambition. Therefore, love is a choice. And I went over that last Lord's Day and I'm not going to repeat myself this morning. 
Love is the superlative relational bond between people. It's the best way for an organization to function. Though the organizations of the world don't know what love is, this is not really an organization when we have a church. It's an organism. And the parts of our body, this church body, should relate to each other like the parts of my physical body. My physical bodily parts all love each other. They care about each other. And if one part is ailing, the other parts will make up for it or ask for the day off if it's bad enough. Love is a wonderful thing. It's the superlative relational bond of men, and it unites churches together. Now, I shared with you this morning, Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, be kindly affectioned one to another in brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Romans 12, 10, it's a wonderful verse. Let me spend a moment on that under point two, that love is the greatest concept. Why don't we look at Romans 15 and see if the apostle mentioned it again in that epistle. Romans chapter 15, love is kind affection, preferring others before yourself. Are you kind to others? That doesn't mean you open the door for them. Are you affectionate toward others? Now, to be affectionate toward another person is to be kind, benevolent, compassionate toward another person. And yet we have the Holy Spirit combining two terms and saying be kindly affectioned, which is, is an emphatic combination of terms. Are you kindly affectionate to the other members of this church? Driving here on Sunday, sitting and driving home, is no kindness at all. It is not affection at all. Because when you don't show kind affection toward others, yet you come, you are a burden to us. We wish you would go away. We don't want you here. We don't need you here. You don't add anything to us. And when you disappear and we're praying for it, we will not be the worse off by one bit because you never did anything for anyone. We only want those here that want to compact this body together and make it better for the Lord Jesus Christ. Love is always looking outside itself toward others. When you leave quickly after a service, it's because all you can think about is yourself. When you come late, all you can think about is yourself. When you don't participate, it's because all you can think about is yourself. You prefer yourself over others. And that is a choice that we need to make to prefer others over ourselves. The Lord Jesus Christ preferred us over himself. The Lord Jesus Christ preferred his Father's pleasure over his pleasure. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done for these ugly scumbags that I'm going to redeem. He didn't say it quite that way, but the Bible does say that he reconciled us to God while we were his enemies. And while we were without strength, and while we were sinners, he saved us. Love is kind affection, preferring others over yourself. Look at the first two verses of Romans 15. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us, notice the, in, 
the individual nature of New Testament doctrine. It is not some fuzzy, bland, broad concept of church love. It is individuals being addressed by the apostle on the behalf of God. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Does that back up my definition of love? Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good and his edification. Edification is building something up. An edifice is a built-up structure. We want to build each other up so that we each love God more and we love Christ more and we are more committed to his word and we are putting his word into practice in our lives and we have marriages like we should have, relationships with our children, on the job, with the government, like we should have. This is what's taught in that second verse. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good. The love of fornicators is lust. Right. And that is to please my neighbor. That's the girl that's on my motorcycle or in my car. That's to please my neighbor for my good. That's why the L word is used. I love you. I love you gets clothes off. Every young fornicating man knows that. It gets knees spread. I love you. That isn't love. Right. That is selfish narcissism and hatred of that poor girl and her family. It's so different, the world's idea of love. Right. And that use of love is found in the Bible, in Proverbs chapter 7, where the adulteress is seducing the young man she says, let us take our fill of love until the morning. There's no love in adultery except self-love, selfish cravings and lusts. This is, we're totally, it's totally different. What the world calls love is nothing but lust. What we are defining as love here is looking outside ourselves for the good of another. Do you like this verse? Amen. I love this verse. It's rather plain and simple. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. So let's do it in a way that pleases them, but it's for their good and it builds them up. Now that's balancing a few things because you can't just jump on them. You can't just preach them a sermon. You've got to do it in a way that, that pleases them and motivates them and provokes them to love and to good works. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. What choices do you make pertaining to this church to please yourself? You're wrong, you're hateful, you're selfish, and you stand in doubt as to whether you're even a child of God. The fact that you believe the doctrine in our church or you believe the King James Bible or anything like that is no evidence of doctrine whatsoever. Never has been, never will be. The devils believe the King James Bible. The devils fear God and they tremble about it. But what have you done to please others and what choices do you make to please yourself? What choices do you make to protect your schedule? 
What choices do you make to protect your stupid money? What choices do you make to please yourself instead of pleasing others? This is what we should do. This is what the Lord wants us to do. He did it. Did he care about his money? Did he care about his position? Did he care about his throne? Was he in the form of God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but laid aside all of that and came down to earth and became poor? The poor perceived son of a carpenter was laid in a manger, died on the cross, the cruel death of the Roman crucifixion. He didn't please himself. We shouldn't please ourselves. Okay, we're on point number two, that love is the greatest concept. And I want to emphasize this fact of looking outside ourselves and exalting others as being more important than ourselves. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. This is very important. When the Bible says that the second most important commandment is thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Why does it say that? Because we already love ourselves supremely. And if we could ever learn to love another person like we love ourselves, that is the highest measure of love on earth. For you to care about another person as much as you care about yourself. And so Jesus taught it that way. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Why don't you get out of yourself and learn to love other people like you love yourself? 1 Corinthians 10.24 puts it this way. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. And that wealth here is not financial wealth, it's spiritual wealth. It's conscience wealth. It's faith wealth. These verses are wonderful. This is the Word of God. My job description is very simple. It's three words. Preach the Word. This is the Word of God. So I read it to you again. Let no man... Did it say in the previous verse, let every one of you? So that was a positive instruction. This is a negative warning. Let no man seek his own. But every man another's wealth. Quit trying to seek your own advantage, your own profits, your own pleasure, your own ease, your own comfort and seek the comfort, peace, pleasure, and profit of others. So the Lord teaches us. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. I used it to open the preparatory email sent to you yesterday. I will just read verses 3 and 4 this time. I don't want to be distracted by verses 1 and 2, though the distraction there is a very powerful, logical argument that if... There are such things in God and his gospel, it ought to move us to show what is described and prescribed for us in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. There shouldn't be quarrels, grudges, conflicts in our church in you trying to protect yourself or vainglory, your efforts to get any attention. But in opposition to that, in lowliness of mind, Let each esteem other better than themselves. Themselves is plural, but that just means the rule I just gave applies to the whole church. But the rule that he gave is one by one. But in lowliness of mind, let each. Each is not plural. Each is singular. 
Let each esteem other, not others, but other. One-on-one again. Yes, I know I'm emphasizing it. Because you can't excuse yourself by saying, I love the church, and you mean some fuzzy, undefinable concept of, I'm acceptable, or I accept the rest of the church members as a group. The Lord doesn't allow that. That is unacceptable. That isn't love. It's meaningless. It's profitless. It doesn't do anyone any good. This is what does people good. In order, we need to lower our mental value that we put on ourselves and raise the mental value. We raise our mental value that we put on others. In lowliness of mind, esteem other better than themselves. This is totally contrary to the world. The world sings the greatest love of all is loving yourself. The world says that the panacea for relational problems is to have self-esteem. But this verse doesn't tell me to have self-esteem. It tells me to have other esteem. We reject self-esteem as a diabolical lie of the devil. No one needs more self-esteem. They came into this world at conception with all they ever will need. And too much. I love this text. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. So it is a mental choice that I am not the most valuable. It's a mental choice. My desires, my preferences, my time, my money doesn't matter. They matter. Therefore, my time is their time. My money is their money. My refrigerator is their refrigerator. My car is their car. My emotional effort is is theirs. I'll do anything I can for them. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now it's got the word also there in verse 4, which means that you do have to take care of yourself a little bit. And that's why also is there. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So, Because we got to take care of our own things to a degree, but then we should always be looking outside ourselves. What can I now do for someone else? What can I now do for someone else? And the less you have going on in your life, when you're retired, or your job is limited, or you don't have a job, and you've got more hours, what in the world are you doing with your life? God is counting every one of those 168 hours. Use them. For others. And so this point that I want to make right here is getting outside ourselves. This is a glorious concept. We're under the point concept. Love is the greatest concept. Fully against the natural, popular, devilish love of self. The Bible warns that in the perilous times of the last days, men shall be lovers of their own selves. Evidence number one of perilous times out of 19 traits is loving yourself. i got to protect myself. If I love my husband that way, I'll turn into a doormat. Oh, you're so bright. You're so bright. Your marriage is so miserable. Everyone is so unhappy. You're displeasing God, and he is going to rip you to shreds when you meet him because you don't want to love your husband or you don't want to love your wife 
because if I love them the way that you preach in this church, I would just be a doormat and they'd walk all over me. You selfish thing. How does that thought even enter your mind? Because all you can think about is yourself. When you should be thinking about others. It's a commandment to think about others. You promised that you would think about that person you married when you married them. You promised. You vowed before God that you would do it. And it's the only way that your marriage will ever be happy. It's the superlative relational bond. If you don't do it, you're going to suffer the consequences. Thank you, Lord. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. Trait number one of perilous times. The world foams at their mouth about self-esteem, though they know it is high or the highest among criminals. Psychological evaluations have been done of criminals, and they have been found to have very high or the highest self-love and self-esteem. And that should make perfectly good sense to you in something around three seconds. Why are they in prison? Because they wouldn't keep the law. Why wouldn't they keep the law? They were better than the law. But what about the laws that involve other people? Those laws don't matter because they're more important than the other people. So B and E doesn't bother them. They can break and enter someone else's property because they're more important. They don't think about it that way because they're too stupid. And they're too blinded by self-infatuation. They just break in because they're more important. And I need a fix right now, and I don't have the cash because I don't believe in working, so I'm going to use a little B&E to pay for my next high. They've learned, the world knows that. You can read their studies. The world knows that, yet they want to foam about the fact. What we need in America is more self-love and self-esteem. Oh no, that isn't what Americans need. They need more other love and other esteem. This thinking by the world's best and brightest proves they're morally, logically, and practically insane. Mm -hmm. To want to tell criminals that you can make yourself better by coming to my little sensitivity session, and I'll help you love yourself more. Criminals don't need that. They need to be forced to serve others. That's what the Bible did. Sold them into slavery. Drill a hole through their ear and make them a permanent slave so they can repay their B and E crimes. Bible love is opposite the perverse selfishness and destructive sins of self-love and self-esteem. This is the highest order of love to think about another person's good. Think about another person's profit. Think about another person's wealth. Some of these words that we've used here, and I want to sell that to you because it's the word of God and it's wonderful and it's precious. And when people relate this way, it is as high as man can get. What if, now when I was a financial analyst, we would do what if financial analyses of different factors involving the future of a company or of of a decision that we were going to make. And a what if analysis was what if we try this What's going to happen two years, to our, two years from now to our earnings? Well, let's do it this way, a what-if analysis. What if everyone esteemed and honored all others more important than themselves? What if people did that? What would it be like? It'd be wonderful. Right. It'd be wonderful. What if everyone showed this fantastic alteration of human nature to each individual person? 
Wow, it'd be wonderful. That should be logically obvious to you. It should be morally obvious to you, and it is scripturally obvious because it's written. And that's all we need. Christians never think, not for a second, of others doing this to them, but rather them to others. If it's even crossed your mind, why isn't everyone loving me the way the pastor is preaching? If it's even crossed your mind for a second, you have a spiritual problem and you're selfish. It shouldn't enter your mind. All that should be entering your mind is the conviction, I could, I should love others on an individual basis more than I do. In any setting and at all times, you should consider yourself the least important person present. There I go again. A couple of life priorities. I am third. Beautiful statement. I am third. Jesus first, others second, myself last. Joy. How do you find joy in life? Jesus, others, and then you. What if your prayer requests were mostly for others? If you were thinking more on the things of others than your own things, and we ask for prayer requests, and your hand goes up, what are you going to ask for? The need of someone else in the church. Why would you raise your hand for yourself? Just help me. Why would you do that? I don't understand. The Lord doesn't understand. Well, I have this need. So? Why don't you want to mention someone else's need? I know how harsh and crass I am at times, like right now. I know, but I'm trying to help you think. Why would you raise your hand and ask prayer for yourself when you're supposed to be thinking about others? We're going to get to you soon. Do you know how soon we're going to get to you? When we get to request 205. But, you, but I want to tell you something. If you'll raise your hand and ask prayer for someone else, you're going to have your request answered in haste right. by the God of heaven because you've put others first, practicing love of others. He will honor you for that because you're fulfilling his word. Right. We will get to you. We, should, we know about your needs, and you know about others' needs, and that's how we... I'm just, I'm just asking what if. What if prayer requests were mostly for others? What if your prayers were mostly for others? What if your concern for prosperity was mostly for others? What if your health was less important than other people's health? Right. What if you used social media for others only, knowing that there's no one out there that wants to know about you? I hope you know that so that you don't go through life self-deceived. What can you do for others? If you're even going to mess around with social media, what are you going to do for them? Right. Telling them about you is not doing anything for them. You say, well, what about my parents? Then write them an email. Why are you broadcasting it to the whole world if you're thinking about your parents? Don't use excuses like that with me. I'm not quite that easy. That was number two. Love is the greatest concept. How about love is the greatest definition? That was number three. Remember that number three, love is the greatest definition because the Bible gives us a definition and we've just looked at some extra verses that we didn't look at last Lord's Day that are wonderful about love and that is seeking another's welfare and another's wealth and another's good 
that they can be better in the sight of God and men. Love is sacrificial desire producing action to help another person realize God's best for his life. And if we always thought that way, we would be building each other up so that our church would be constantly growing by every part up to the... This is how the Bible describes it, to the full measure of the stature of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the head of the church. He has put his spirit in the church. And when we follow the spirit and don't grieve and quench the spirit, we compact ourselves together and build up the body. We edify ourselves in love, Ephesians 4, 16. And so we grow up to fill out a perfect, glorious body for the Lord Jesus Christ as our head. And we do that by love being a sacrificial desire, producing action to help another person realize God's best for their life. How do love and charity relate? I mentioned this briefly last Lord's Day. Are they different? Do they include one another by their definitions? Yes and yes. In some respects, charity and love are synonyms for each other and are used that way. And in other respects, they're not. Because if charity is a subset of love, then charity does encompass some things that are considered to be love. But charity does not encompass everything that is considered to be love because it's only a subset. Is that right? It's been a long time. Subsets and supersets, intersecting sets, and so forth. Lord, thank you. There is not an error, fault, or weakness in the King James Version because charity adds an emphasis that we want and we need. Charity is a subset of love. It, It is more love's negative aspects, those aspects that are described in the Bible as suffering. Love suffers. How does that definition of love start in 1 Corinthians 13, 4? Charity suffereth long. Charity suffereth. Well, that's not exactly what we think of when we think of love, but when we think of charity and properly understand the word charity, it is what we initially think of because we put up with another person and bear them and forbear them and overlook their faults, and that is the charitable or the negative side of love, suffering. It's Let me put it this way. Is it right for charity to be the highest? Let me get to that in a moment. Charity is a subset. It's more love's negative aspects like suffering another person, forgiving them, forbearing them. Here's the dictionary definition of charity. If this means, listen carefully, charity. A A disposition to judge leniently and hopefully of the character, aims, and destinies of others to make allowance for their apparent faults and shortcomings, large-heartedness. So it's an overlooking aspect of love. When there is another part of love that is not an overlooking aspect, it's a creative aspect that wants to go do something for someone else. Peter, when he lists eight things that we ought to have in our lives to make our calling and election sure, started with faith. He starts with faith because that's the gift of God that doesn't prove very much. There's lots of believers that are going to go to hell. There are lots of people that have called on the name of the Lord that are going to go to hell because the Bible says so. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus references those that believed on him but didn't really believe on him. He would not join them. He would not approve of them. And in fact, he called them children of the devil because they did not believe on him to change their lives to obey him. And that's what it takes. The devils believe in God. 
and they tremble. They believe in prophecy. They believe in Bible doctrine. They know that Jesus Christ is going to torment them for eternity. They know all that. They professed that. They professed with their mouth the Lord Jesus. When the devils on this earth saw Jesus Christ of Nazareth before he was even glorified, they would fall at his feet and worship him and declare that he was the Holy One of God. That's as good of a profession as anyone that's ever been baptized has made about as far as professing the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord. They know exactly who he is. He's the Holy One of God, and he has the power and the authority and the destiny to cast them into hell and to torment them for eternity. That is not enough. Love, faith is not enough. So the Apostle Peter started with faith and then added to it virtue and knowledge and godliness and patience and temperance. And then the top two keystones of eight things that we ought to have in our lives to make our calling and election sure is brotherly kindness and charity. Amen. Brotherly kindness is what we read in Romans 12.10. It's brotherly love. It's showing kindness and an affectionate spirit toward our brothers. It's brotherly love. But how does charity get above it? Charity get above brotherly love. Because charity is harder. The negative aspect of love is harder than the positive aspects. Let me put it to you this way. Is it right for charity to be the highest? Indeed. It is harder to forgive offenses than to take someone to dinner. There isn't even a, it's not even close. Because it's a lot harder to forgive someone who has offended you, hurt you, than it is to take them to dinner. Or to take someone to dinner. Take someone to dinner, flash a piece of plastic, eat some good food with them. It only takes a few minutes. Then you can say bye-bye and drive away. And you, and you justify yourself as having done something noble, good, and great. But how about somebody that just irritates you, offends you, has denied you, hurt you, stolen from you, whatever, and you forgive them and overlook it. Forgive them and overlook it and forgive it again. And as the Lord told Peter, 70 times 7, Peter, is a closer number to how often you ought to forgive your brother. Right. Oh, that's much harder. And so that's why we have charity in the Bible. And thank you, Lord, for putting charity in the Bible. Amen. It's the greatest definition. Very quickly, let me show you this definition. Look all the way back to Leviticus 19. It's just a, it's a small part of love, but it's there. Leviticus 19. Children, are you excited that I've had your writing on your handout today? <laughs> love is the greatest definition. Here is, a, here is a different aspect of love. Leviticus 19. Remember last Lord's Day I shared with you from verse 11 down through verse 18 that there are a number of statements here made about how they were to treat each other in the nation of Israel, which, are, which was like church members, because the, the nation of Israel was the church in the Old Testament. But I want verse 17. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Well, how do we do that? Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. If you know in your heart that your brother is doing something wrong and you don't do anything about it, 
then you're hating your brother in your heart. The opposite of that and what we should do, thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Don't let anything stand between you and doing what you ought to do. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Now the book of Proverbs tells us that when you rebuke a wise man, he will love you for it. If you rebuke a scorner, he will hate you for it. David said, if the righteous smite me, I'll consider it a kindness. Because that's the attitude we ought to have towards someone rebuking us. But this is a part of love because it's correcting errors and it goes back to our ultimate definition. Our ultimate definition is the sacrificial desire to help another person please God and men. And how do you help them please God and men? Sometimes you give them an example. Sometimes you give them encouragement. Sometimes you give them friendship. Sometimes you give them a rebuke. Like this text tells us, and like other places tell us. Jesus said in the red writing in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So Jesus Christ shows that toward us, and we ought to show it toward others. It's not the most important part of love. It's a small part of love. Because the big part of love is charity. And that's putting up with the personal faults and offenses of others toward us. Overemphasis on this part of love, which has happened in the past, is a distortion and creates a Gestapo mentality in a church, which is not the mentality we're supposed to have. Yet, it is part of love. Because if you truly love someone, you will correct them, you will rebuke them, you will warn them, in order to help them do what is right. Because sometimes it takes more than encouragement, it takes correction. It takes reproof. It takes warning. However, the New Testament spends a whole lot more emphasis on the bowels of compassion, the bowels of mercies that we're supposed to have toward each other, and the bowels that are to be motivating us in our treatment of others. We're, we're supposed to put on bowels of compassion, and how in the world can we have stuff and have another person in need and our bowels not be moved for them? That's the emphasis of 1 John 3 and 4. Number four on your handout is love is the greatest ideal. Here we go. Number four, love is the greatest ideal. Our use of the word ideal is a conception of something or a thing conceived in its highest perfection or is an object to be realized or aimed at, a perfect type, a standard of perfection or excellence, and love, Bible love, is an ideal because of the way it's defined and the way it's the concept of it. And when it's put into practice, it is so fantastic. Men, Worldly men have sought to find an environment. They have sought a philosophy or a system to realize perfection. And they have tried to call it utopia. But they have miserably failed in all forms. Especially the idiocy of communism or the hippie movement. Remember free love. Some of you are too young to remember those days in the 60s where everybody painted themselves colors and let their hair grow long enough to sit on and didn't want to go to work and just wanted to sit around and smoke marijuana all day and listen to The Who, which was a rock group from England. The hippie movement. They thought they had found a new way to live. We can get rid of the establishment. Throw off the yoke. Sing along with The Who. Won't get fooled again. Won't get fooled again. They thought that they had found something. They found nothing but trouble. 
And what a messed up bunch of people they were. Hallucinating, free love, free, free uh, disease is what we can call it. It was a, a free zone for diseases. STDs rampant because of their idea of free love. The Bible understands something, and it's an ideal of how people can work together, and it's the love that the Bible describes. Where do wars and fighting come from? Where does fighting and war come from? Fighting in your family. Fighting in a marriage. Fighting in the world. Fighting in America. Civil war. Fighting in the world. World War I. World War II. Fighting in the Middle East. Where does fighting and wars come from but the lust that war in your members? Right. And it's the lust of selfishness. James chapter 4 and verse 1 addresses it head on. James chapter 4, 1. From whence comes war? From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Right. Yes, indeed. And then verse 5, do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Did the scripture waste a sentence or two or a page or two or ten pages by saying that the spirit in us loves to envy other men? No, it did not waste any space because that is a fact of human nature. So where do these wars and fightings come from? They come from the lust that war in our members. The selfish lust in men, not replaced with love for men, destroy men. It is so logically simple. Simple. It is so morally perfect. It is so practically possible if we would just love others more than ourselves. But it's the selfishness that rages inside us by nature. The selfish lust in men, not replaced with love for men, results in fighting and wars in marriage, fightings and wars in families, fightings and wars in nations, and, and among nations in world wars. This leads to foolish destruction of war, no matter what it's in. War is terrible. Right. You know, as a young man, so when I was foolish without any wisdom, which is what is true of young men, that's why they will volunteer to join up at 18 when there's no nobody's threatened in their community, no one's threatened in their family, but they don't really want to go to work. They would like to get three squares a day, get a nice set of clothes given to them, play around with a rifle, get to put some nice medals on their uniform and parade around the community when they come home and so forth and so on, feel their testosterone, do extra push-ups, do extra pull-ups, and so forth and so on. But war is terrible. Right. As a young man, you think that it's great. Oh, I want to march off and kill Germans. It's World War II. Oh, I want to sail off and kill Japanese. It's World War II. I want to, I want to, I'll, I'll go to Korea when you're young. But war is terrible. War destroys. War confuses. War fills with fear. War ruins assets. War ruins nations. War ru ruins relationships. War ruins houses. War is terrible. Right. War causes confusion, despair, fear, hopelessness, loss, mayhem, murder, pain, trouble, and worry. I want to I remind you that war is terrible. 
No economic class should be able to convince you otherwise. Anyone ever tells you that World War II is what gave America the economic boost after the war? That is a lie from hell. Right. War never gave an economic boost to anything. War is destructive in nature. War destroys assets. War destroys economies. The only reason there was a wild time of prosperity after World War II is because of the discipline exerted on this nation during World War II in saving. Nobody spent any money. They saved up and accumulated capital. And they put the women to work in our factories. There were other factors. It wasn't the destructive nature of war. It wasn't that we took 50% of the gross domestic product, sailed it across the Atlantic, and blew it up in Europe, or sailed the other half across the Pacific and blew it up in Japan. That's not how nations get ahead, because war is destructive. And all of this conversation right now about war is to make you hate war and fighting. And where do wars and fightings come from? Do they not come from your lust that war in your members? Yes. And so the cure is to replace our selfish lust with selfless love for others. If nations did it, there wouldn't be war. But there's going to be war until the Prince of Peace comes, and he's going to make peace by one final war. He's not going to ask any longer for men to get along. He's just going to annihilate the enemy. That's coming soon, and it'll be wonderful. Love is the greatest ideal, and that ideal is replacing our selfish lusts that war in us. They're not going to get away with that. They, be, they better not talk to me that way. Those selfish lusts that war in our members, replacing it with selfless love. Right. Lord, help us to do that here in this church. Amen. Let there never be cliques or segments or schisms or quarrels or grudges here. Love is the ideal. It's the highest perfection for relations because it's the bond of perfectness. Colossians 3.14. If two or more were to relate by this definition and this ideal of love, only perfect peace, pleasure, and profit would result. Period. Jesus taught men how to be perfect children of God, and that's to even love our enemies. Right. What a lofty concept. Love our enemies. And you know, Americans do that better than any other nation on earth in the way that we treat captives and the way that we treat the enemy in fighting, after fighting, and rebuilding their nation. It's incredible. And that is not because our government is all that godly in their thinking, but it's because throughout our nation there has been a Bible thrust of loving thy neighbor because the Bible has been preached in America more than in any other nation. I remember, and some of you were there, meeting some SS officers that had served in the panzer tank divisions of the German army. And at the end of the war, they were sitting in their tank. There was the Russian army. There was the American army. Which one are we going to surrender to? That was an easy decision. You did not want to surrender to the Red Army. Not after what the Germans had done to Russia on their way in and what the Russians had done to the Germans, the Poles, and others on the way back. 
and so they surrendered to the Americans. What do Americans do when they come into a village if they've got any extra Hershey bars in their packages, in their knapsacks? They're handing out candy bars. It's just a totally different view of things, and that's because of the Bible influence in this country. But we want to be the ultimate example of all this and never let there be wars and fightings in here. There shouldn't be wars and fightings in families. There shouldn't be wars and fightings in marriage. It's the selfish interests of some wife that doesn't want to serve her husband or some selfish interest of a husband that doesn't want to love his wife that causes it. It should be replaced with selfless love. Lord, help us to do that. Jesus taught for us to be the perfect children of God is to love our enemies because he does it. He sends his sunshine and his rain on the evil and the good. Our prisoner of war camps for prisoners taking during World War II were very different than anyone else's. And I I love the biblical influence that has been in our country, but I hope that you know that this is the year 1970, this is the year 2017, and 1945 was 72 years ago. Things have changed a lot. We must love one another to show the invisible presence of God perfected in us. This is how ideal it is. Last verse, and we go to break. 1 John chapter 4, look at this. I've preached this before. This is weighty. This is idealistic. But this is true. This is reality. Because God is real. And because our congregation is real, we can put this into practice. This is love as an ideal. But it's a real ideal. It's just up to us to practice it. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. No man hath seen God at any time. Period. That is the truth. We have not seen God. We have seen some of his creative works. We have seen his word, but we haven't seen God. Here's how we get to see the influence of God. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. If we love one another, one-on-one, individual love, which is the highest form and the highest measure of it, which we'll be getting to in, in further aspects of love. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us. We haven't seen him. I've never seen him. But when I see the love practiced by some of you toward others, I see him. I see his love coming, flowing through you and knowing that he's done a work of grace in you to cause you to do that. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us when it comes out toward others. His love is perfected. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us of his spirit and his spirit, the fruit of the spirit is love. And so the fruit of that spirit comes through us. I've never seen God, but I have seen a change in people that proves God's spirit is in them, though I've never seen him. God is love. They're showing love on a one-to-one basis with others. God is in them of a truth. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Stand with me.